This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder that some may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On April 15, 1974, several customers stood in line at a Hibernia bank branch in San Francisco, waiting for their turn with the teller. Suddenly a small group of people burst into the lobby, yelling and waving guns, shooting into the air. They informed the customers that they were members of the Symbionese Liberation Army and on a mission to dismantle the capitalist system of oppression. During the robbery, the bank customers noticed a thin young woman standing near the door of the bank, watching over the frantic crowd. She was holding a gun that looked far too large for her slight frame. The woman raised her weapon and tried to shoot up into the air, but her gun jammed. She let it fall to her side and shouted into the chaos, quote, This is Tanya, Patricia Hurst. First person puts his head up, I'll blow his head off. One customer thought they recognized her voice and dared to peek up at her face. It was Patricia Hurst. But what was she doing here? And why was she robbing a bank? Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi. I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. Today, we're continuing our discussion on Patricia Hurst, who was kidnapped by the SLA in 1974. Eventually, she started committing crimes alongside her captors. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Last week, we covered why 19-year-old Patricia Hurst was targeted by the SLA and detailed her kidnapping on February 4, 1974. For the first two months of her captivity, Patricia was locked in a closet, blindfolded, and only taken out to use the bathroom and occasionally shower. The SLA educated her on the tenets of their revolution, teaching her how and why the system was corrupt and had to be dismantled. And Patricia learned that the more sympathetic she was to the SLA and their radical ideas, the more freedoms and rewards she received. Through the course of her imprisonment, she gained sympathy for and from her captors, developing Stockholm Syndrome. Eventually, she joined her kidnapper's cause and pledged her life to the SLA, assuming the name Tanya. This week, we'll cover Patricia's time as a self-described urban guerrilla and the events that led to her arrest. We'll also follow her highly publicized trial in which the world questioned the validity of her claim that the SLA had brainwashed her. Throughout Patricia's initial captivity in the spring of 1974, Donald DeFries, the leader of the SLA, regularly sent tape-recorded messages to local radio stations. He called them communiques, using them to detail the goals of the SLA and deliver his ransom demands. On a few tapes, DeFries forced Patricia to speak. She alleged that he told her what to say, but made her say it in her own words. In one communique, she addressed her parents directly, criticizing their response to her kidnapping. DeFries recorded a new tape after Patricia pledged herself to the SLA to announce her conversion to the world. It was played on local radio stations on April 3, 1974. In the message, Patricia stated that she was free to leave the SLA, but had chosen to stay and help them in their fight against oppression. She insulted her parents and her fiancé, Stephen Weed. She actually broke up with him in the recording, referring to him as her ex-fiancé. In her autobiography, Patty Hearst, Her Own Story, Patricia wrote she didn't believe any of what she said. She did whatever she was told so she would survive. Before we get into Patricia's psychology, just a quick disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. According to psychiatrist Tina J. Walsh, victims can succumb to a state of helplessness and powerlessness shortly after being kidnapped. According to Walsh, instead of being tortured, you receive kindness. You are given a drop of water. You're not beaten. You begin to develop feelings of gratitude. Over time, it wears on even the strongest person. So, with that gratitude awakened and a strong will to live, Patricia said goodbye to her old life and fully embraced the SLA. She started weapons and fitness training with the other members and stood guard with them. She even learned to make pipe bombs. Now that she was one of them, DeFries issued her a machine gun of her own. But despite this newfound freedom, Patricia never considered escaping. In her autobiography, she noted that all of the SLA members slept with guns. There was never a chance for her to leave. Shortly after welcoming Tanya into the fold, the SLA began to plan their next big mission, robbing a bank. They decided on this crime for two reasons. 
First, they wanted to further their mission of fighting capitalism through terrorist actions. They planned the robbery for April 15, 1974, Tax Day. They wanted to show the world that they could destroy rich capitalist institutions. The second and more practical reason, they needed money. They had to pay rent on their safe house and feed the nine adults living there. DeFries laid out the logistics of their plan, informing Patricia that she would be an active participant. She and five other SLA members would storm the bank, take the cash, and escape in a getaway car. During the robbery, Patricia was to stand by the door and make sure all of the customers saw her. DeFries wanted her to shoot into the air and announce herself as Tanya. She seemed to be more of a propaganda symbol than anything else. In selecting which bank to target, the SLA specifically scouted for a bank with security cameras. They wanted images for the media to use that proved Patricia had joined them. In 1974, security cameras were still a pretty new technology, so there weren't many banks to choose from. They eventually selected a Hibernia bank in San Francisco. In her autobiography, Patricia said that DeFries came to her in private before the robbery. He told her, quote, if you mess up, if you do anything different from what you're supposed to, you're dead. He still wasn't completely certain that she had converted to their cause. This was Patricia's chance to show him that she had. The next morning, the SLA executed their carefully laid plans. At 9.40 a.m. on April 15th, Patricia and the other SLA members stormed the Hibernia Bank. The robbery lasted just a few minutes, and the SLA walked away with over $10,000. But more importantly, the world would soon see that Patricia was willingly involved in the SLA. Even faced with the video evidence, Randy and Catherine Hurst continued to support their daughter. Jeffrey Tubin noted in his book, American Heiress, that Randy told the media, quote, no matter what she says and does, as long as she is under the control of the SLA, we know she is not acting of her own free will. Whatever legal problems are in her future, we will be there for her. When the FBI examined photographs from the robbery, they noticed other SLA members kept their guns trained on Patricia. They reported that she may have been acting under duress and coercion. The FBI issued warrants for three women they identified as SLA members. Nancy Ling Perry, Camilla C. Hall, and Patricia Mizmoon Soltisik, charging them with bank robbery. They also issued a warrant for Patricia, charging her with being a material witness to a bank robbery and kidnapping. James L. Browning, United States Attorney for the Northern District of California, said that Patricia was not charged with robbery because there is reason to believe that she may not have been acting under her own will. But over the next few weeks, the matter grew complicated. On April 24, 1974, the SLA set the record straight, sending a new tape-recorded message to a local radio station. On the tape, Patricia directly incriminated herself. She claimed responsibility for the robbery and insisted she wasn't brainwashed. She was a loyal member of the SLA, happy to fight for their cause. She condemned the FBI for charging her comrades and not herself. Though it may seem strange for her to defend her kidnappers in this way, according to psychiatrist Joseph M. Carver, 
the combination of Stockholm Syndrome and cognitive dissonance produces a victim who firmly believes the relationship is not only acceptable, but also desperately needed for their survival. The victim feels they would mentally collapse if the relationship ended. When she reflected on this recording in her autobiography, Patricia once again stated she was only parroting what the SLA wanted her to. But in 1974, Patricia seemed to be cemented to the SLA no matter what happened. After the Hibernia robbery and the subsequent communiques, the FBI reclassified their search for Patricia. She was no longer a captive, but a fugitive. We'll talk more about Patricia's life in a terrorist cell after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In April of 1974, 20-year-old Patricia Hurst appeared to have sided with her captors, the Symbionese Liberation Army. On April 15th, she helped them commit a bank robbery and steal over $10,000. At first, the SLA celebrated this victory. However, once the adrenaline and excitement wore off, Patricia began to see the reality of life as an urban guerrilla. The nine adult members of the SLA were all crammed into a small, one-bedroom apartment. Because they were wanted fugitives, no one could leave the house. Instead, they continued to run drills and make plans for their next revolutionary strike. During this time, Patricia reportedly had a close relationship with fellow SLA member Willie Wolf. Other members of the group described them as a couple. Patricia has repeatedly denied the existence of this relationship, saying Wolf sexually abused her. However, in the photographs from the Hibernia bank robbery, Patricia was wearing an Olmec monkey pendant that belonged to Wolf. This could indicate that they did have a relationship, as other SLA members claimed. The SLA had a free love philosophy. Everyone had sex with each other. But as Jeffrey Tubin noted in an interview, it was impossible for Patricia to give consent because she was a hostage. He said, quote, Any woman who had sex, having been kidnapped and kept in a closet, is being raped, regardless of the other circumstances. There is no possible way to say that Patty Hearst consented to sex in the closet. If any relationship with Wolf existed, it was likely based in Stockholm Syndrome, coercion, and sexual abuse. According to trauma psychologist Elizabeth Carl, whenever an abuser shows acts of kindness toward you, it shows you some hope that you will survive. That, combined with the terror of what could happen, sets the stage for wanting to please the abductor and eventually feeling positive toward the abuser as a way of coping. Perhaps this explains why Patricia would wear Wolf's pendant. In one of the taped communiques, she referred to him as the sweetest, kindest man she'd ever known. But in the context of her capture, Wolf could have garnered that kind of endearment simply by treating her with basic human kindness, as opposed to treating her like a political prisoner. Shortly after the Hibernia robbery, DeFries became worried about the police discovering their location. They needed to find a new safe house in San Francisco. 
before they left, they trashed the one-bedroom apartment. They graffitied the walls with taunting messages for the FBI. They wrote that there were clues in the bathroom, but they should find them at their own risk. They dumped documents relating to the planning of the robbery and the keys to the getaway cars in the bathtub, dousing them in hair dye, cooking spices, cyanide crystals, and their own urine. Police discovered the disgusting apartment on May 2nd, 1974, but the SLA had already moved. The FBI had no further clues as to where they went. By that time, the SLA were living in one side of a duplex in a mostly black neighborhood of San Francisco. They thought it would look suspicious to neighbors having eight white people living in the area. So once again, they stayed cooped up inside. DeFries had friends on the outside bring them food and necessities. They continued their drills, exercising in the house. They needed to be in a condition to fight when the revolution began. DeFries led them in calisthenics, target practice, and more, telling them that the other SLA splinter cells around the country were also preparing to fight. In reality, the SLA consisted only of the nine adults in the duplex. In her autobiography, Patricia admitted that at this time, she believed DeFries's lies, that the SLA was a nationwide movement comprised of many revolutionary soldiers. So she went along with everything she was told to do. Exercise, stand guard, make bombs, repeat. Patricia reported that she was depressed and miserable during this time. And she wasn't the only SLA member who felt this way feeling the cramped quarters, and once again paranoid about police discovery, DeFries decided they should move again. This time, he suggested they travel to Los Angeles. DeFries had grown up in Southern California and knew people there who could help them. DeFries divided the nine members into three groups of three to make the long drive to Los Angeles. Patricia was paired with Bill and Emily Harris. They were the only married couple in the SLA and reportedly bickered constantly. Still, the drive was made more bearable by the potential of their new lives in LA. In San Francisco, the police were searching for them everywhere. This was a fresh start. However, when the group saw the house they would be moving into, they all had second thoughts. It was a small, run-down house with no electricity and one bedroom. There was no hot water and no kitchen. This house was also located in a predominantly black neighborhood, so once again, they rarely ventured outside, fearing it would draw too much attention. On May 16, 1974, after a few weeks in L.A., Bill and Emily Harris wanted to go out and buy some food and new clothes for the group. Patricia jumped at the chance to go with them and breathe fresh air. But the Harrises didn't see Patricia as a strong soldier and dismissed her. Patricia insisted she was an equal member of the group and deserved to go. The decision fell to DeFries, and he ultimately let her join their trip. That day, Patricia and the Harrises went to several stores before stopping at Mel's Sporting Goods. Patricia stayed in the van as a lookout. They were still fugitives from the FBI after all, and maintained constant vigilance. That day in the parking lot, Patricia sat in the van with the keys in the ignition and a full arsenal of guns. But she didn't drive away from her captors. This was possibly her best chance to escape, but she wrote in her autobiography that she was still too afraid to leave. Remember that she believed the SLA was a worldwide network. Even if she fled today, where would she go that they wouldn't find her? 
Nearly four months of captivity had transformed her mental state, and Patricia didn't need anyone pointing a gun at her to stay put. She was kept captive in that van by her own brain. While in the store, Bill decided to steal a shotgun shell bandolier. A cashier saw the theft and confronted him, forcing him out of the store. The situation escalated, and Bill started fighting the cashier and his boss. Four other men rushed in to join the fray. They tackled Bill, who reached for his gun. In the van, Patricia heard the chaos and jumped into action. She grabbed a submachine gun from the back seat and started shooting. She fired off 30 rounds of ammunition, aiming above the fight, shattering the store window. When her gun ran out of ammo, she grabbed another from the van and shot more rounds. Eventually, the men fled to call the police. Bill and Emily ran to the van and they sped away. Jeffrey Tubin has pointed to this moment as a pivotal turning point in Patricia's capture. It signaled her complete transformation. He did not speculate on the cause, simply that she was now clearly one of them, acting of her own volition. He said, quote, Here's a woman alone in a van with the key in the ignition, and instead of driving away, she fires a machine gun to free her comrades. As Patricia and the Harrises fled the scene, they worried the make and model of their van would be reported to police by the store manager. They abandoned the van and stole a car, trying to get back to the safe house. But after a few short blocks, the stolen car died. They had to find another. They stole a second car, but then became paranoid. What if the owner of this car reported it to the police as stolen? They'd be captured. It was no safer than their van. They drove into a neighborhood and saw a van for sale outside a house. Emily went to the door and told the 18-year-old boy who answered that she was interested in buying the van, but wanted to test drive it first. When the boy came outside, Bill pulled a gun on him and forced him to get in the back seat. Patricia was already inside, ducked down low. The kid was a high school senior named Tom Matthews. When Bill told him that the woman he was sitting next to was Patricia Hurst, he felt like he was seeing a celebrity. Patricia bragged to Matthews about her work with the SLA. She told him that she believed in the SLA's mission and wanted to help the people. She told him she wasn't in any danger at all, and she certainly wasn't brainwashed. In case they had a police tale, Bill, Emily, and Patricia didn't want to go back to the safe house. So instead, they went to a local drive-in movie theater. The SLA had previously arranged this as a backup meeting place if they became compromised. Patricia, Matthews, and the Harrises watched two full movies together. But DeFries and the others never showed up. To escape possible recognition, they carjacked another car and let Matthews go. They asked him not to call the police. He seemed to be sympathetic to their cause and was impressed by them rather than afraid. He kept his word. But they were still worried Matthews might report their newest license plate. So they went out in search of another car. Emily and Patricia posed as hitchhikers, breaking off from Bill. They knew two women on their own would have better luck getting someone to stop. When a man pulled over for them, Emily showed him her gun and hijacked the car. They went back and picked up Bill where they'd left him. It was now getting dark again, and they hadn't heard from the other SLA members in over 24 hours. They didn't want to go back to the safe house if the police were following them. 
but they didn't have another backup plan after the movie theater. Emily decided they should drive to Anaheim and stay in a hotel outside of Disneyland. She thought they could blend in among the tourists. As it turned out, while they headed for safety, the police were on their way to the SLA safe house in Los Angeles. The police had discovered the original SLA van after the shootout at Mel's Sporting Goods. Patricia didn't realize that when they abandoned the vehicle, the trio had left an unpaid parking ticket on the passenger seat. The ticket listed the address where it had been issued. It was the address for their safe house. So while Patricia and the SLA were robbing banks, building bombs, shooting at people, and stealing cars, the crime that truly got the police on their case was a traffic violation. But when police arrived on May 17, 1974, the house was empty. The other SLA members had fled to a nearby boarding house after hearing about the shootout on the radio. However, just as DeFries feared, all of those white faces stuck out to the neighbors, as did the several guns they carried. It didn't take long for the police to find them. Soon, a SWAT team arrived and surrounded the boarding house. The police shouted for the SLA to come outside, but they refused. Both sides geared up for a standoff. When the TV news outlets caught wind of the story, they rushed over to set up cameras. Everyone assumed that Patricia Hurst was inside the boarding house and wanted to be the first to report on her arrest. But Patricia was in Anaheim with the Harrises. The trio watched the events unfold on TV, anxious and nervous for their friends. Eventually, the police threw tear gas into the house, trying to force the SLA out. But they still didn't budge. Instead, they started shooting out the windows at the police. The police fired back, and it devolved into a massive shootout. In her autobiography, Patricia said that as she watched the live broadcast, quote, the emotional shock was devastating. Shots rang out, and my entire body reverberated as though struck. As the firefight continued, the police escalated their tactics. They once again launched canisters of tear gas into the house, but this time they used Federal 555 riot tear gas, which was much more potent and flammable. Sparks from the SLA's firing bullets ignited the gas, starting a fire. In their preparations for war, the SLA had moved several cans of gasoline into the house. The fuel fed the flames, and soon the house was engulfed. Still, the SLA refused to come out. Eventually, the roof collapsed, trapping everyone inside. No one survived. Patricia watched in horror as most of the SLA died on live television. She no longer saw them as her kidnappers. She thought they were her comrades, the only people in the world who cared if she lived or died. Patricia sat silently in the hotel room with Bill and Emily Harris, grieving. The SLA had gone from nine to three members in one day. This was Patricia's chance to escape without retribution. But instead, she declared to Bill and Emily Harris that as the last living members of the SLA, it was up to them to take revenge. Together, they were going to take down the police. Coming up, we'll explore Patricia's life after death. Now, back to the story. In May of 1974, the majority of the Symbionese Liberation Army 
died in a standoff with the police. Their captive, 20-year-old Patricia Hurst, was thankfully away from the group at the time of the confrontation. Patricia had watched her captors' horrific deaths on live television while holed up in a hotel room in Anaheim, California, with the only other surviving members of the SLA, Bill and Emily Harris. She told them that they should take revenge on the LAPD for what they'd done. All throughout her captivity, DeFries told Patricia that the police wanted to kill her. Now she had seen that brutality with her very own eyes. She didn't trust any law enforcement agencies. Patricia noted in her autobiography that after watching the other SLA members be brutally killed by police, she felt the FBI would shoot her on sight if she attempted to turn herself in. After the shootout, Patricia and the Harrises knew the police would be looking for them once they realized their bodies weren't among the remains of the others. They drove south to Costa Mesa, California, and stayed in a motel for 10 days. There, they heard of a memorial service for the dead SLA members held at Berkeley, led by a woman named Kathy Solia. Kathy's former best friend was Angela Atwood, an SLA member who had perished in Los Angeles. Kathy publicly spoke out in support of the SLA's goals. Seeking an ally, Patricia, Bill, and Emily returned to San Francisco and tracked down Kathy Solia. Kathy agreed to help them and set them up in an apartment. But even with this new goal, Patricia was struggling. During this time, she drank heavily. It's not unlikely that Patricia was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder after watching the SLA shootout on TV. Psychiatrist Tanzil Ansari reports that many sufferers of PTSD abuse alcohol as a coping mechanism. The Harrises often left Patricia at the apartment by herself, but she never once tried to escape. In her autobiography, she said, quote, It simply never occurred to me. My fear of the police outweighed my hatred for the SLA. At the same time that Patricia, Bill, and Emily were trying to form a new organization with Kathy and her friends, someone tracked them down, a journalist named Jack Scott. Scott wanted to write a book about the SLA. He invited them to a farm that he and his wife had rented in Pennsylvania. Out of San Francisco, they could find a respite from their fugitive existence. The farm was secluded enough that they wouldn't have to worry about police finding them. In exchange, Patricia, Bill, and Emily would provide exclusive interviews to Scott. But Jack Scott had one rule at the farm, no guns. At first, Patricia and the Harrises were resistant to comply. Bill was especially angry about it. He insisted that a soldier needed to be armed at all times. But eventually, Patricia and Emily talked him into it. They were safe there. The police had no reason to suspect they were living on a farm in Pennsylvania. According to American Heiress, while in Pennsylvania, Patricia brooded over the names of people she wanted to kill. She was still hellbent on getting payback for the murder of her SLA friends. But outside of the revenge plot, Patricia and the Harrises seemed happy at the farm. They continued their daily drills so they would be ready when the revolution came. Somehow, though, Bill got a BB gun and began target practicing. As a result of breaking the one rule, Jack kicked all three of them out and sent them to live in a house in the Catskills. But while they were taking full advantage of Jack's hospitality, they weren't offering him what he wanted in return. Eventually, 
Jack realized he wouldn't be getting any material for his book, so he decided to send them back to California. In the fall of 1974, Patricia, Bill, and Emily were smuggled to Sacramento to reconnect with Kathy Solia and the new SLA. They renamed themselves the New World Liberation Front, or NWLF. Among the NWLF members was Steve Solia, Kathy's brother. Steve and Patricia became a couple. American heiress noted that Patricia wrote about him, quote, he did not try to dominate, teach, or make demands. For me, that alone won my gratitude. Steve was a house painter and sometimes took Patricia out on his jobs. She was glad to get out of the house and no one ever recognized her. Being outside, completing a task, and hanging out with a guy was almost a return to normalcy. It was a happy time for Patricia. She and Steve began going on dates like a normal couple. But a normal couple they were not. They had plans to build bombs, which required expensive materials. As 1974 turned to 1975, the NWLF realized they needed money. They were tired of making ends meet by stealing wallets and eating cheap horse meat. They decided to rob another bank. Patricia visited several banks around Sacramento, scouting for the right target. She took notes on the blueprints of the buildings and the way the branch operated. On February 25, 1975, a little more than a year after Patricia was kidnapped, two NWLF members went into the Guild Savings and Loan Association in Sacramento and robbed it. Patricia and Emily took a bus to the bank, picked up the bags of cash the other members handed them, hopped back on the bus, and went home without even being noticed. But the haul wasn't as big as they'd hoped. Less than $4,000, it didn't even last two months. Soon, they planned another robbery. On April 21, 1975, four NWLF members entered the Crocker National Bank in Carmichael, California. The plan was the same as it had been for the other robberies. Get in, get the money, and get out. Leave no clues, leave no casualties. Patricia's role was to drive a getaway car. But during the bank robbery, Emily Harris's gun fired, and she accidentally killed a woman, Myrna Opsal, a middle-aged mother of four. The NWLF members fled to Patricia's waiting van, frantic. Patricia didn't know what had happened inside. As she drove them away, they told her that Emily had killed a woman, and Patricia was now an accomplice to murder. The murder haunted the group, and they were never quite the same. They had managed to walk away with $15,000, but it was covered in an innocent woman's blood. A few months after the robbery, the NWLF decided to return to San Francisco. Steve and Patricia moved into their own apartment together there. Patricia was now no longer living with any of her original SLA captors, but her fear of the FBI kept her from contacting her family or trying to return home. She continued her life of crime. In August of 1975, the NWLF focused their full energies on making pipe bombs. Patricia and the SLA had practiced making bombs since her kidnapping, but she had never actually set one off. Now, she wanted to. On August 7th, 
Patricia and a comrade planted a bomb underneath a police car in San Francisco's Mission District. They were hoping to destroy the police car as revenge for the murder of the SLA members. But the bomb never went off. A few weeks later, on August 20th, Patricia planted a bomb outside the Marin County Civic Center, while Steve placed a second one under a police car. They hoped the police would rush out after the first bomb exploded, then be killed in the second explosion. Patricia's bomb did go off, but Steve's didn't. No one was hurt. In the meantime, the FBI started following Kathy Solia. She first caught their attention with the same SLA memorial service that inspired Patricia and the Harrises to find her. Though it took several months for the police to put together a profile on Solia, they eventually discovered her involvement with the NWLF. She unintentionally led the FBI to Bill and Emily Harris's apartment, and then to Patricia's. On September 18, 1975, the authorities found Patricia in her apartment and arrested her. She didn't try to shoot the agents or fight back. She confirmed she was Patricia Hearst and went with them willingly. Her strange life as a revolutionary was finally over. At 2.25 p.m., less than 30 minutes ago, we arrested Patty Hearst and Wendy Yashimura. But in police custody, Patricia continued to act like an SLA member. As she was escorted inside the courthouse in front of reporters and spectators, she threw up her fist in a revolutionary gesture. In her autobiography, she wrote, quote, It seemed to me that I was trapped in this netherland of radicals and revolutionaries. Theirs was the only world I had. I did not really know what I believed anymore. She refused to cooperate with the authorities or tell them anything about her time with the SLA. When Patricia was booked into the San Mateo jail, she listed her occupation as an urban guerrilla. She wrote letters to Steve Solia from jail, telling him how she couldn't wait for them to be together and talking about the fascist pig police. Patricia was charged with armed bank robbery and the use of a firearm in a felony. These charges were exclusively related to the 1974 Hibernia bank robbery, as it was the only crime the police had concrete evidence for. In preparation for the trial, she was given a mental fitness test. According to her autobiography, one psychiatrist, Dr. Lifton, ruled she was emotionally and mentally impaired to a significant degree, sad, hopeless, emotionally distressed, and expressing a silent cry for help. He also diagnosed her as suffering from coercive persuasion, which is the more formal term for brainwashing. Patricia noted in her autobiography that Lifton told her, quote, one does not revert back with the snap of the fingers upon being released. This might explain her behavior and resistance to authority after being arrested. She was still in the mindset of an SLA agent because their beliefs had been drilled into her day in and day out for the last year and a half. Though she had been a victim of psychological manipulation, Patricia was deemed mentally fit to proceed to trial. So a court date was set. The proceedings began on February 4, 1976, two years to the day after she was kidnapped. The courtroom was packed with spectators and reporters. Everyone wanted the scoop on what really happened to Patricia Hearst. 
According to her autobiography, more than 300 reporters came to cover the event, but most of them couldn't fit inside the courtroom. Patricia's lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, presented her as a brainwashed prisoner of war. He blamed everything that she had done on the fact that she had been kidnapped. He used examples of brainwashed Korean War POWs. However, the prosecution argued that Patricia was a willing member of the SLA. They pointed to her recorded communiques, the Mel Sporting Goods shootout, and submitted pages from the book about the SLA that Patricia was writing. They called Emily and Bill Harris as witnesses against her. Tom Matthews, the teen who had been held hostage alongside Patricia when he was carjacked after the Mel's Sporting Goods shootout, testified that she was a willing radical at that time. When Patricia took the witness stand, the prosecutor asked why she saved the Harrises from Mel's instead of leaving them. Patricia replied that it was an instinct that came from her drills with the SLA. The prosecution also presented the Olmec monkey pendant from Willie Wolf as proof that Patricia had not been coerced. It was found in her purse when she was arrested, over a year after Wolf's death. If she was truly afraid of him, considered him to be her kidnapper and rapist, why did she keep a gift from him? It threw everything into doubt. Her trial lasted over a month. During this time, Patricia received death threats and the media remained convinced she was guilty. On March 20th, 1976, the jury agreed with the papers. Patricia Hearst was found guilty. Patricia Campbell Hearst has been convicted on two counts of bank robbery and possession of a firearm to commit a felony. The verdict was reached after only 12 hours of deliberations by her jury of seven women and five men. On April 12th, she was sentenced to 25 years for the Hibernia bank robbery and 10 years for the use of a firearm in that robbery. It was devastating to Patricia and her family. But after she underwent a psychological study, the judge decided to lessen the sentence. On September 24, 1976, her sentence was reduced to seven years. Bill and Emily Harris were eventually sentenced to 11-year-to-life prison terms, although they only served about eight years of it. Patricia couldn't bear the fact that they had received only a few more years than her on their sentence when they had been involved in all of the same crimes, but also kidnapped her. Her family couldn't bear it either. They decided to appeal her case to President Jimmy Carter. On January 30th, 1979, he commuted her sentence. Patricia was freed two days later, after serving a total of 21 months in prison. The vilification, the brutalization of her uh, can never escape, I'm sure, um, from her heart and certainly that those who were very close to her. And in 2001, President Bill Clinton issued Patricia a full pardon for her crimes. Today, the public consensus is that Patricia suffered from Stockholm Syndrome. But at the time of her trial, the condition was basically unheard of. The term itself was only coined six months before she was taken by the SLA. There's still debate among psychologists about whether or not Stockholm Syndrome is real. It's not listed in the DSM-5, the American Psychiatric Association's classification of mental disorders. Some psychologists believe it's more of a media buzzword than an actual psychological syndrome. But the connection persists. 
Patricia's kidnapping and crimes remain practically synonymous with the diagnosis. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Stacey Milborn and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 